We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is, basically we've said this is Jesus kind of beginning to talk, describe the kingdom of heaven. So he said, and John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, he's kind of describing that. And as Matt described it, uh, Jesus is explaining kind of the culture of God's kingdom, was the word that he used. This is the culture of God's kingdom, or this is what it looks like uh, for people to live with Jesus as king. Or this is what it looks like to be under the rule of Jesus, living as, as members of his rightful kingdom. And I don't know if he caught it, but the goal of living in his kingdom is to look like him, to look like the Father. Like That's kind of his goal for us in this. And Matt kind of pointed out, and this is what I really want to emphasize tonight, God's kingdom is not just about keeping rules. Which is, I mean, you may think that's unfortunate because if you're like me, you can keep rules really well. Or I, I feel like I can, I'm a rule keeper, right? So like you tell you, um, tell me tell me the speed limit's 65 and then I'm gonna go 65, right? I know my speedometer's a little bit off, so I can go actually 67, which is really 65. And I'm like a like that's I'm a rule follower, and I've been uh, I've been a, a rule follower. I feel like my whole life, uh, not to perfection obviously, but that, like even as a, as a kid, right? Um, yeah, mom knows a few times I broke it. Um, but. But that's very much me. But as hard as I try, and you guys may be able to agree with me, as hard as I try, I, and, and as good as I can be at keeping the rules, I just can't always do it. And um, so I want to share with you guys something that um, is kind of a little part of my story that many of you may not know. Um, and I think it's appropriate based on our passage tonight. Um, and I asked Mary Beth, she's, she was cool for me to share it. Um, and my parents are savvy to this, but it may, some of it may come as a surprise. So I was, um, like growing up, I was this rule keeper, a good kid, um, grew up in the church. And like did a pretty good job looking like really spick and span, I think. Um, and I was kind of looked up to. Um, but there's, there's a few things in my life I'd say that people, for the most part, didn't know. And one of those, I'll just like, go ahead and drop the bomb and you'll uh, see why um, some of you this will take a surprise. But I have committed adultery. And um, I'm not talking like emotional adultery, like I spent too much time with somebody, but I'm talking like sexual adultery, like relationship. And I don't talk about it much because it's, um, it's embarrassing and I don't want to like dishonor my, my wife, uh, but it's part of my story that I need to be more open about. And uh, you might like, I don't, I don't know what your view of like leaders of churches or pastors are. Hopefully it's not that they're perfect, but um, but you might think, oh wow, like I don't know if that like drops your, your view of who I am at all. But I want to tell you like what Jesus says in this passage, which, which is why I'm convicted this way and convicted to share more about it. Um, he says in one of the verses that we're looking today, um, 
you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to Jesus, I have committed adultery in my heart, but but it's not, he doesn't say it's like you've committed adultery. He says you have committed adultery. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, some of you like may think like may maybe deep down you breathe a sigh of relief because you think oh oh you know thank goodness that Jared like he didn't actually commit physical adultery like he didn't enter into a physical relationship with another girl maybe that's like oh phew I don't want to hear like that kind of uh, intense stuff. Um, but according to the passage today, and that's just one example that Jesus uses, but that is the type of thing, adultery even in the heart, what goes on in the heart is the type of thing that keeps us away from the kingdom of heaven. It's not just the action that we that comes out of our heart, but it's, it's the condition of our heart. It's not just the big things that we do, but it's the condition of our heart that Jesus speaks to. There's another example that we'll look at where Jesus um, says, he talks about, hey, you shouldn't, you shouldn't murder. But then he says, you also shouldn't be angry with someone or, or, or insult somebody or call somebody a fool. And he says that the, what happens if you do that, not just for murder, but being angry with somebody, wrongfully angry with somebody, that makes you liable to judgment, liable to the council, it says, or the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, liable to hell, it says. Not just murder, but these other things in the heart, this angry, angriness and this being against other people. So what goes on in the heart, I think Jesus is pointing out now, and this is kind of new to maybe some of the Jews that were hearing it, but is... is really just as significant as what I do. And oftentimes, as you guys know, it, it leads to those like physical actions. But we like to we like to categorize sin, right, into things that like, well these are these are the actions that I can see, and then we have these other separate things that these are just my thoughts and I try to keep them under control. And there's a whole like form of of Christianity where people think, well, if I can just keep from acting out these things, then I'll, I'll be good with God, or at least I'll look good. And the reality is, you'll be no different than a Pharisee was that Jesus speaks very harshly against in the book of Matthew and the other Gospels. Um, so Jesus is clearly teaching here, we're going to see, that kingdom living, being a citizen in, in the kingdom of God, that culture is not merely about physical rules. And like we learned from Matt in the Beatitudes last week, um, we, God is concerned about the type of people that we are. Like who, who has he called us to be? Not just in our actions. So are there rules? Yes, there are. There's rules. There's things that we learned, hey, we're supposed to do this and we're not supposed to do this. But they're not meant to be a checklist. They're meant to show the heart of God and the way that we are supposed to be. And so, like, if you pull away nothing else from tonight, um, just remember this, that Jesus isn't calling us to keep rules. He's calling us toward the character of the Father. 
He's not just calling us to keep rules. He's calling us toward the character of the Father. So let's look at the passage, the first several verses. If somebody could read Matthew 5, um, just 17 through 20. 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so back up at the top, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, which, if you don't know, is just a way to refer to the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. They're known as the law and the prophets. Um, and what Jesus hasn't come to do, it seems, is to toss the law and the prophets out the window and say, these just aren't important anymore. That doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, he says, um, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so, like so far we've seen already in Matthew, <coughs> Jesus, his life has been fulfilling some of the law and prophets. We've seen five prophecies specifically that Jesus has already fulfilled. But it's not only his life that, that is fulfilling the law and the prophets, but it's his, it's his teaching. Because what he's doing is he's taking this Old Testament law and the prophets, which we're going to see, and he's, he's, he's fulfilling it by, by giving it a fuller, more complete understanding. Because there was, yes, there's the laws and the regulations and everything that Israel is supposed to do and be and God's people are supposed to do and be. But what Jesus is wanting to show them is the intent behind those things. That's what Jesus is bringing to the table to, to fulfill those things. And he says it, it's very important, the law and the prophets, even down to the iota and the dot. The iota is the smallest Greek letter in the Greek alphabet. And the dot is like just the, the smallest like little marking of a pen that you can make. And so he says, None of, not the tiniest bit will pass away until all is accomplished, or until Jesus returns and his kingdom is, is consummated, or until all is accomplished and everything that the law and the prophets write about, until everything that they've said is going to happen has happened, which hasn't until this point, and it still hasn't. So he says, none of that passes away yet. It has purpose. And again, Jesus... He's not throwing the law and the prophets and the Old Testament out the window. It's like important to understand that. But he's fulfilling the law and he's showing the, the heart of the law and the intent behind the law and the character of God that the law was supposed to point people toward. So in verse 19, he says that we shouldn't even relax on these things, the ESV says. So like, don't, don't go easy on what we're supposed to do, but, but do them and do them to the full extent of of what they mean. So if you've been in Christian circles for a while, uh, say the last three or 400 years, like we're, we're real big on like saying, well, the grace of, uh, the grace of God, we're, you know, we're saved by faith and, and grace. And it's, we have freedom in Christ and we're not under the law. And we don't, you know, we don't have to, our life isn't about doing, doing, doing all these different things, um, which is, which is very true. But what Jesus is doing it, He's not tossing everything out the window. He's saying, I don't call you merely to law-keeping and rule-keeping, but I call you to something much greater. I actually call you to the character of the Father, not just the system of rules. 
And he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, exceeds, like how can your righteousness, the good things that you do and don't do, how can that exceed like the, the best righteous people of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're doing everything right. And he says, unless you exceed that, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see in his examples, he's about to list out about five examples, but we're going to see that, that God wants to, wants to go to our heart. He wants to go beyond the law. He wants to go beyond rules. It's not just this, do this or don't do that, but he's going beyond to the type of people that we are. This is the type of person that you're supposed to be because this is the type of God that we have. This is God's character. So this is how you ought to be if you're living in the kingdom in this culture of, of God's kingdom instead of the culture of the kingdom of the world. And so um, Jesus kind of is, is setting up his sermon here, holding up the epitome of religion and righteousness with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's saying, these, these guys, see, they are missing the mark. There's something more that you're called to. And um, so he sets off into this pattern of some examples of here's, here's what I mean, your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And his pattern through these five or six different examples is you have heard it was said such and such, but I say this, and then he, on most of them, he gives a couple of examples of how that might look in your life. So you've heard it was said, um, and some of them are like Old Testament quotations, this is what it was said, or some of them are like um, just like commonly understood religious goodness. You've heard it was said this, and then Jesus says, but I say this, like I'm going to tweak it and let you know what actually the purpose behind that is. And so here's a little, uh, some examples maybe of how to live it out. So the first example that he uses is uh, regarding anger. So if somebody could read uh, verses 21 through 26, 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never go out until you have paid the last penny. Right. So Jesus is saying, hey, like you, you thought, you've heard that you're, you're not supposed to murder. Okay. Well, he goes well beyond that. And he says, included in that or beyond that is this condition of our heart called anger. And notice it's not, in verse uh, 22, everyone who demonstrates anger, but it's everyone who is angry. Like it's the type of person that that is, or it's, a, it's one of their characteristics at the time. So it's, it's not just murder, but it's this, this anger inside, or it's this insulting, like he described, the calling somebody, you fool. Um, and notice, again, it's not, it's not just murder that's liable to judgment, but he says, whoever's anger with his brother is liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother is liable to the council or the Sanhedrin, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So the true follower of Jesus, the one who's living in righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or the member of God's kingdom, isn't just somebody who avoids murdering people. But the because that's what the legalists would say, right? Well, what do I have to do? Like, how can I live by the rules? Okay, don't commit murder. Okay, I didn't murder anybody, so I'm good. But the follower of Jesus says, how can I have a heart like the Father, and a heart like the Father is not filled with anger against people, okay? Um, at least unjustified murder is, or, or anger is the idea here. So you, you can't, Jesus is saying, you can't just, it's not good enough just to not murder, just to keep those rules, but God requires that you be something, that you're, that you're not one who is angry. And so what should I do? He gives a couple examples there. If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, before you do that like physical demonstration of, well, here's my worship and here's the good deed that I'm going to do. I'm going to offer this gift on the altar. No, I need to restore whatever relational turmoil I have, which isn't seen, which is something maybe going on in our hearts, before I do that actual like physical thing of, of bringing this offering before the Lord. Um, or then he says, if you're, if you're on your way to court, like settle it, settle whatever your dispute is before you get to court, before the judge says, okay, yes, this was right or this was wrong. No, settle it before that while it still uh, has a chance to be settled. Basically, I think what he's saying here is if you're, not, um, if you're not right with your brother, you aren't right. Like it doesn't matter what, what you do then or what the judge says or what altar gifts you bring or whatever it is. But if you're not right with your brother, then you're not right. That's, that's something internal that's going on that isn't demonstrating the character of the Father. You can't just cover it up with like doing these good things. And I, I think the idea here, like a side note is, and just for like practical wisdom, is take care of that hastily, like quickly. Whatever you have, it's like the Ephesians 4 verse that says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Like, take care of it now. Like, as, like if you're thinking, man, I have, I have, my brother has something against me or I'm, I'm in conflict with somebody uh, that needs to be restored. Like, go, like, when you leave here tonight, take care of that tonight. Because what happens when you don't is it grows into bitterness and resentment. And you get more and more angry. And then eventually, if it's left unchecked, you murder the person. I mean, that's, if you talk to murderers, it started somewhere, right? Like, it gets down. And so uh, I love the idea of just, hey, take, take care of it quickly, like before, before anything else happens, before the sun goes down, like Paul says, um, just take care of that. So the end goal here, Jesus' end goal, isn't that we just avoid murdering people, but that we would be kind-hearted like the Father is kind-hearted. That's, that was the goal, even way back in this Old Testament command of, don't commit murder, which seems, okay, that's easy enough. But the purpose of that is because that's not demonstrating God's kind-heartedness and love. So Jesus isn't calling us to keep rules. He's calling us toward the character of the Father, which in this case is, is kind-hearted and loving versus murderous and against people. Uh, somebody read the next example, 5, uh, 27 through 32. Read all the way down the... If your little headings say lust and one says divorce, go ahead and read both of them, 27 and 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Alright, so Jesus says it's not just don't commit physically adultery, but it's an issue of lust. And I think it's like really interesting. The way that like I've always understood this and read this is uh, like like the ESV kind of explains it. If if you uh, look at another person with lustful intent, um, I read several commentators that were like, it could mean that, but the way the sentence is phrased grammatically, it it could just as likely mean that whoever, in this case, with a man or woman, whoever looks at a woman with the intent of having her lust after him. Like, that's equally as likely, I guess, and I don't know Greek or whatever, but that's what the smart guys tell me. And so, so I don't know, like, if, if any of you have ever done that, guys or girls, but, like, you, you think to yourself, I, I want that person to want me. And so it's, it's not, it, it, it's any, any form of, of lust or fornication, I think, would, would count here. That he's saying it, it's that type of thing, this lustful intent or trying to have somebody lust after me is, is the type of thing that he's, he's comparing to adultery. So it's not just adultery, but it's this also. And then he talks about divorce as well. And I think what's going on with divorce is um, uh, basically in the Old Testament for a while, the Israelites were able to uh, write a certificate of divorce and get divorced, which what would happen then is these first century Jews would be like, well, look what, look what Moses said. He said that we could get a divorce. So instead of me actually committing adultery, I can actually get a divorce. So now I'm married to this other person, and now it won't be adultery technically because I, 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 I did it within the bounds of the legal system or whatever. And Jesus would say, you've, you've completely missed the point. Like, that's not, that's not the purpose of marriage. That's none of it. That's, and so the true follower of Jesus, the one that's living in, in righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, that's a true member of his kingdom, isn't just one who avoids physical adultery. That's what the, like the legalist wants to do. They just want to say, well, give me the rules. Okay, I can I not commit adultery. Or, or I can, um, in order to make it legit, I can divorce this person so I can sleep with whoever I want to. But the follower of Jesus says, how can I have the heart of the Father, what this command, do not commit adultery, was pointing towards. How can I have that? Well, by not having a, a desire, by being the type of person who doesn't desire to go against what God has designed or to have something that God hasn't given to you. So what should I do in this case? He gives a couple examples, and I think the point of the eye and the hand is to show us, again, like we think, well, it's just, it's just adultery of the heart or whatever, but to show us the severity of what goes on in our heart and the importance of cutting that out. So he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I think he's speaking hyperbolically, hyperbolic, but, um, or he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, which a lot of commentators actually think right hand is a euphemism for penis, um, cut it off, he says, if it causes you to sin. So like, I think the point here is not that we 
actually have to do those, those extreme measures, but he's calling that internal sin, like what's going on in our heart and in our mind, he's saying that's against the character of God, so we better take it very, very seriously. So, like, just take a minute and, like, evaluate your mind. You know, am I, have I been lusting after others? Am I, like, am I doing things that I that purposely is, are causing them to lust after me. And if you are, that's called adultery. Like Jesus is saying, this is adultery. Now in all of these things, I, of course I'm not saying Jesus would say, well, adultery of the heart, um, if you've done that, then you might as well just commit physical adultery. Or if you've been mad at somebody, you might as well just go ahead and murder them. Obviously that's not what Jesus is saying. But he, he's showing like the, the, the depth of this and the, the perfect character of the Father that he's actually calling us to. And it's so much more than these rules. Yeah. Oh, if you aren't married, then is it still adultery or? So yeah, I, basically, it seems what Jesus is doing, and we're going to talk about this at the end. But he's giving examples of what's that? You can say it. No, no. I, I'll say he's giving examples here. So I think you can say. I don't know whether you technically call it adultery if you lust after somebody when you're not married or cause them to, you know, it's. Whatever, but the idea is it's not just well don't do these physical things. Not only that, but it's it's whatever's going on in our heart. So I'd say any sin, maybe a summary of it all, any sin that's happening in our heart is sin, just like what we do. Um, and we're we're actually going to talk a lot about divorce in chapter 19 because it gets into there's some like, well when is it okay to do this and that and um, I I really don't want to take the time on that tonight because it's that's not really the point tonight later in Matthew 19 I think it becomes that but basically the end goal of that command do not commit adultery isn't just don't commit adultery but it's to point to God's character and God is faithful so all of those things under that we see as not as bad as as actually having a physical relationship with somebody other than your spouse all of those things it's still going against God's faithful, good character in what he has called us to. Um, the next example, uh, chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, if somebody could read that. Oh, it's 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Alright, so uh, just a bit of background on this. In Judaism, in the time, they were so like, everything was regulated, right? Like we we can do this, and if you just do, if you do it this way, it's okay. If you don't do it this way, it, it was real like specific what you were, what was good and not in their in their Judaic system. And one of the things with, when it comes to like swearing or making promises or oaths or whatever was there were certain things that you could swear by that then like it really counted and you had to follow through on it. There's other things that you would swear by, and it was you could you you wouldn't have to keep your word on that. It wasn't binding. And so, and it was right down, it was so specific that it was even like, you could swear by Jerusalem, and it was a, you wouldn't have to follow through on that, you didn't have to keep your word on that, but if you swear toward Jerusalem, 
then you would have to keep that and follow through on that. So it's like so specific and rigid. And so what the people, you can imagine what they're doing is they're using that system to deceive people. So I can say this, and as long as I don't swear by this or do, then it's going to be okay. I don't have to keep what I say. So it's, they're still engaging in deception, but they feel like they're following the rules. So the true follower of Jesus, the one who has righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, isn't just one who avoids those obvious, blatant lies. Even though that's what the legalist wants. They want to know, well, did you swear to God, or did you swear by Jerusalem, or toward Jerusalem, whatever it is. A follower of Jesus says, how can I have the heart of the Father? It's by being consistent in my word, faithful to what I say at all times. And so his, what should I do then? It's just, hey, if you say yes, then mean yes. If you say no, then mean no. James uh, says the same thing in his letter. So when you say something, follow through on it. And interestingly, like the last line, it says anything more than this comes from evil. So I don't know if you've ever said, well, I really mean it this time, or that kind of thing. I, well, no, that's, that, that's e like you should have meant it the first time. Like don't just add on, well, I'm up in the ante this time, and I want to swear by this or that. Or no, that's... Like, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And so it's not so much don't do the big obvious lies, but demonstrate the character of the Father by being trustworthy all the time, every time, in what you say. Because Jesus calls us, again, Jesus calls us not just to keeping rules, but he calls us toward the character of the Father. Like, that's what his goal in this is, is that we would demonstrate that. Okay, the, the last two sections, I think, really get harder and get even more to the heart of Jesus. This is kind of another level. Um, so somebody read verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. All right. A, a backhanded slap, like right hand to right cheek, is like the ways the Jews would like insult each other. Like that was just a strong insult. I guess it'd be insulting to us too. Um, another thing going on, like the... The government at the time, the Roman government, could require someone to, if if there was military passing through, they could require the citizens to like carry their military equipment. Like that was legal and something that would happen. So that's when he says, if you're told to go with somebody for one mile, go two miles, which is where we get our expression, go the extra mile. That's where that comes from. Um, so basically what, the, what the, the Jews of the time would remember and think back to is from Leviticus, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. Which sounds kind of harsh, and you think, well, what could the heart of the law in that be? Like, why would God ever command just such a, hey, if somebody does this to you, then you can do it back to them. But the reality is, it seems that that law was set up for the Israelites not so people could pay each other back, but to limit retaliation. So there wouldn't be a, a, abuse of that system. So if somebody punches you in the eye, you don't have the right to murder them. It was, it was, to, it was to limit those things. That's what the, the, 
the heart of it was. Um, but you can see like the people of this day thinking, well, this is this is what the law says. If somebody does this, then I can do this back to them, and that's that's they're they're using the law in an incorrect intention to to get back to get back at people. So this is one that I'm probably most uh, guilty of. Like I I love uh, my my heart, I should say, like works around retaliation, and I think like, well, how can I? Yeah, I've been wronged. How can I make this miserable for this person who's wronged me? Like, I, I, I usually don't. Most often, I don't act it out. But man, my mind is like, like going to town. Like, man, I could really ruin this person. Um, a small example. Uh, Mary Beth had a gym membership uh, in Simi Valley, and she got jacked on her contract. Like, they told her very specifically when she signed up. Um, you can cancel at any time for no charge, and you'll be refunded whatever the remainder, um, remaining amount of your membership fees were. Very clearly told her that. We knew that we might be moving, so that might be a, a strong possibility. Time comes, hey, we're moving to North Hollywood. Uh, no, sorry, that's, that's not right. We, it's going to be, I think, it was a $200 fee or something like that, which was barely more than the remaining amount left or whatever. And so we were ticked. Um, and like y'all, my mind, like I literally, I, it's embarrassing to say, but I literally was thinking, how can I like adjust my work schedule to be standing out front of this gym <laughs> telling everybody that goes in that's a potential new client, they're going to jack you, you run the other way because this is a horrible business and like trying to ruin all of their, like I was thinking, I'll quit my job and stay here like, out of the streets and every day, I, don't, I hope you weren't 24 hours, but like I could be out there for hours and hours a day just turning people away just to retaliate, like that's... It was Gold's gym, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Always, <laughs> <maybe>. always <laughs> But, so, back to this, and that's just a little confession. Um, well, now you've told a few people. My mind... <laughs> 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 Super nice gym, it's you know. <laughs> uh, but the the follower of, of Jesus, the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees isn't the person that, that goes around saying, Well, I just want to give people what they deserve. And and that's the law, like the legalist says, Well, this is what they did to me, so I want to do this back to them. And I was even wanting to go beyond that, I think. But the follower of Jesus says, How can I have the heart of the Father? I can extend grace and forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying there should never be a chance to, for us to try to get refunded our money, but man, my heart in it was so, so wicked. So the end goal that I think Jesus is teaching is not to see that justice is served. The heart behind the law is to point us to the Father who is generous and he is forgiving, and that's the type of character that he wants to form in us, not just, well, they did this to me, so I can do this back to them. See, the Old Testament says so, I can do it in my brain. So Jesus, again, he's not calling us just to keep rules, but he's calling us toward the character of the Father. And if you guys remember, when we were studying through 1 Peter, like Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. It says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. When we are like 
like this in, in following the intent of, of, of Jesus as, as members of his kingdom, when we look like Jesus, we, we're, giving, we're, we're showing the character of the Father, and we're giving a glimpse of, of what the kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so he saves, I think, the hardest for last. Um, and if somebody could just read 43, just read through 47, like leave off the last verse, 43 to 47. We have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun, ri his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So, by the way, that you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's, you don't find that in the Old Testament. That's just like a, Jesus is saying this is a common, here's, here's what you hear. You should love your brother and hate your enemy. It's not, um, Scripture never does teach that. Um, but I think that this part on loving everyone, including enemies, is the appropriate conclusion to this kind of part of Jesus' sermon. We move into something different next week. But the purpose of the law and the prophets, really the purpose of the entire Bible, isn't rule-keeping. It's to point to the character of God, which maybe the best way to describe who God is and his character is love. And not just love for people that love him, um, and he, he points that out. Jesus says, hey, anybody can love people who love them in return, people that you like or they're easily lovable. Anybody, even tax collectors, who's like the scum of the earth to the people that Matthew's talking to, like even they can love people who are like them or e even the Gentiles can like greet and, and be concerned about the, the needs of somebody who is a brother of theirs. But God's character of love is, is different. It goes beyond just loving the people who love you. I love this quote um, it says this, to return evil for good is devilish. So somebody's good to you and you return evil. That's devilish. To return good for good is human. Even tax collector, anybody can do that. To return good for evil is divine. So to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good when you've had evil against you is divine. So the goal in this command isn't just or in Jesus' idea of, of love and the teaching of love throughout the Old Testament is not just love people like man loves people, but love people like God loves people because we're wanting to demonstrate God's character. Remember, that's, that's the goal of God for us and in his kingdom is that we would look like him. Now again, the one who perfectly demonstrates the character of the Father is Jesus. And so Jesus, when the whole world was his enemy as he's hanging on the cross, and there's, there's not one person... That is, that is on his side there, all enemies, his response to that is he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <coughs> that's not rule following. That's, that's not Jesus just like doing, doing the, the good thing or just doing kind of the minimum of whatever he has to do that the law says. That's Jesus going, exceeding the righteousness of of anything that we can fathom in his love for enemies. And, and 
like God wants to develop that character in us as members of his kingdom, his divine character. So it ends with a really difficult verse, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is, your, is perfect. That's what God wants to do in us. That's the culture of his kingdom. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's the, the goal of our of the law, the goal of our living as disciples of Jesus is to be like the Father who is perfect. He's not calling us just to keep rules, but he's calling us to the perfect character of the Father. Now that's hard uh, to understand, but I think what Jesus is doing here is like he's, he's teaching two things simultaneously. This is kind of First of all, in, in these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he, he is teaching us how we ought to live or who we ought to be. Like, certainly, he, even though we, we, we can't attain the perfection of the Father, here's how he's saying this is, this is what living as citizens of, of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, looks like. This is the culture that ought to be demonstrated. This is what makes us um, a city on a hill. This is what makes us the salt of the earth is when we are living in this way, demonstrating the character of the Father. So yes, he's, he's showing us how to live. And as, as we read these things, and you guys see, wow, this goes way deeper than I ever thought when we look at the heart, and it's not just about what we do. And man, it, it, goes, it goes behind the, our intentions and our thoughts. Like, it's, it's very right if you're thinking through things in your own mind, oh, this is, I, I've, not, uh, I've not lived properly in this kingdom of God. It's very right to repent and to now follow Jesus and to move forward in that in faith. Um, so I hope that you'll do that. Like that's that's one that's some of the purpose of this is to show us how to live and who we ought to be. So I don't want to ignore that. But the the second side of things that I think Jesus is doing is he's he's purposely giving us, especially in verse forty eight, he's giving us an impossible demand. And even the, like the bookends on this passage, he says in verse 20, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the other bookend on the other side is, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, so here's the reality we all know. We can't do that. That's impossible for us to do. Maybe we've tried, but it's impossible. Even with the rule-keeping of like physically what we do, that's even impossible. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they had a bunch of rules that they were supposed to follow. They couldn't even do that, like set aside their hearts. It, they, they couldn't even keep the physical rules. So it's something that I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's wanting to show us that you can't get kingdom living right as a human who's not Jesus. You can't do it. And that he's speaking to, remember, to a Jewish audience. And if anybody could do it, if anybody knew what they were supposed to do, if anybody had leaders who had given them enough systems and teachings on what they were supposed to do, it would have been these God-fearing Jews. But he's saying the requirement goes too deep. It's so much further than you ever realized it was. This requirement of entering the kingdom of heaven, it's impossible for you to carry out. It's not just what you do, but it's who you are. And there's a marring to who we are. And I think that, like Matt said last week, what, what Jesus wants us to come to is to this place of saying, I can't do it, to where we come to the end of ourself and say, this is like this perfect character of God that I was created in the image of God. I, I, can't, I can't really come close even to demonstrating his character 
perfectly. And I think that's right where Jesus wants to take us so that we understand Jesus is calling us to something that's impossible for mankind. So if we need a righteousness like this to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then we need somebody else's righteousness. And that's the righteousness of Jesus, who was able to carry this out perfectly. So I think that Matthew's like purposely recalling these sections of Jesus' teaching when he's communicating this to whoever his audience was in the first century. He's pointing to our impossibility of being the kind of perfect that this is describing. And it points us to our need of Jesus. Because we're going to see in chapter 19, which I think summarizes a big chunk of the book, what is impossible, it says, with man is possible with God. Like, that's where he wants to move us. We, we can't do He needs to tell the, the Jews who think they've got it right with God. And I think he would say the same thing to many people in the world today who think that they've got it right with God. No, no, it goes much deeper than you ever even imagined. It's not just try to do this and don't do this. It's about your character. It's about who you are. And you need, um, you need somebody else's righteousness to grant you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And it's, this is called a gospel, right? The gospel of Matthew. It's good news. But what we're going to see time and time again is the good news isn't anything about ourselves. Like the good news is about Jesus. And that's what Matthew's pointing to. So I think simultaneously Jesus is saying, here's how you ought to live as members of the kingdom of heaven, and you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. So come to the end of yourself. Now, all that to say, and I'll summarize by, or I'll end by reading a verse from Philippians about sanctification. This is a process that we're on that one day, uh, John says, we will be like him, we'll be like Jesus, we'll see him as he really is. This process of sanctification is something that God starts in us when we believe. And here's what he says, here's what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began a good work and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he is, how he is telling us to live in this seemingly impossible Sermon on the Mount, everything that Matt talked about last week and the beatitudes and everything that we're going to look about and our righteousness and what we do in the future coming here we, we can't even do that like the pharisees do it in a way to impress people but like all of this all of this um requirement god is he's forming this in us as we are with god i, don't, I try to remember what matt said last week because it was so good we don't we don't gain access to God by these things that we do right, but we, by faith, we are with God now, and then we become right because we're with him. And so that's the idea, and we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit here and as we discuss a few things, like how can, we, how can we become these type of 